Uh, hey, we're delighted to be gathered together this morning. We only have a few more uh, of these outdoor gatherings uh, before we're working toward uh, going back inside. Uh, and I just want to acknowledge that God has been with us. You know, that's something that our staff has been saying repeatedly. And as we remind ourselves, even on a morning when we get just a little light spritzing of rain to refresh us and keep us, I guess, growing straight and tall, God has been with us. God has been good. And today we're glad that you're able to be those that are gathered here on the lawn, and we hope that many of you will be able to stay for the picnic that we're having afterwards in this season of regathering. You know, we want to take seriously doing this well in greeting one another, encouraging one another, and building one another up. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Thessalonians. Last month we began a new series from 1 Thessalonians that we're calling Living in Light of Eternity. And 1 Thessalonians is probably the earliest written epistle of Paul. It's a short book, only five chapters long. In the first three chapters, which our pastoral team has preached through thus far in the series, they deal primarily with celebration, you know, celebrating the good work that God has been doing. Your commitment to Christ was authentic. You have endured faithfully even in the, in the face of persecution. Paul says, I sent Timothy to check on you and was, was delighted to hear that when he came back, he brought this favorable report of God's uh, working among you and your continued faith even amidst the hardships. By the way, Paul says to the Thessalonian church, your faith is being talked about. The way that you are living it out, the way that you have turned from idols and have, have looked to the Lord and the way that he's working among you, that's being spoken of. You're, you're actually, your faith is increasing the faith of other people. So there's lots of celebration in these first three chapters. And now in the second section, which involves chapter four and five, Paul begins to lay out a challenge to this church that he loves so dearly. In fact, Paul transitions from celebration to challenge, specifically praying for them what he is about to challenge them with. And it's actually the same things that I was just praying over us a few moments ago. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 12. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. He says, I want to see your love increasing, this church that we love so much. And then in verse 13 of, of chapter 3, he says, May he, that is Christ, strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy, putting a high marker on this maturity in Christ as we become blameless and pure before him. So now as we read in chapter 4, what I'd like to ask you to do is try to get a big picture view of the challenge that Paul is bringing. In short, here's what he's kind of getting at. To this church that he loves so dearly, he says, I want you to be ready for the return of Christ. I want you to be ready. I want you to be a church that's active and it is seeking and is ready for the return of Christ. And I think this is a wonderful challenge for us today, especially in our day and age. So let me ask you this question. If you knew that Christ was returning today, would you do anything differently in the next couple of hours? If you knew... Now, we know, Scripture tells us, no man knows the time or the, the hour. We don't know when Christ is returning. But if you knew that Christ was returning today, would you do anything differently 
in the next couple of hours? Would that change your plans? I suspect it probably would. We'd have to all determine whether or not a picnic was the best way to use our last couple of hours before Christ returns. I don't know. But the return of Christ is seen all throughout church history, and almost every evangelical denomination has some kind of statement similar to the CMA statement of faith. We're giving you a little preview because some of you are going to the uh, membership class later on today where we'll be actually talking about the CMA statement of faith. But among many things that it says about Jesus Christ, he's the true God and true man, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He died upon a cross, the just for the unjust, a substitutionary sacrifice, that all who believe in him are justified on the grounds of his shed blood. And then it goes on to say, he is now at the right hand of majesty on high as our great high priest, and he will come again to establish his kingdom, his righteousness, and his peace. This is echoed later in the CMA Statement of Faith. That's the denomination that we're a part of regarding the imminent return of Christ. This is the believer's blessed hope. It is a vital truth which is an incentive to holy living and faithful service. Now, I wonder, I don't know the last time you thought about the return of Christ, but a big part of this book of 1 Thessalonians is dedicated to that challenge that the church would be Prepared. Now, I'm quoting to you from the CMA Statement of Faith, but you can go all the way back to the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. And if you go through, it says, from thence he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. And so in the spirit of 1 Thessalonians 4, where we're going to be reading today, I would simply ask you to reflect on the question. If you knew that Christ was coming back today, would you do anything differently in the next few hours? Paul writes this, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask you. And urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know that instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Verse 9. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do, all, uh, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and to work with your hands just as we told you. So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. And so that you will not be dependent on anybody. May God add blessing to the reading of his word this morning. I want to actually just pray with you again. We don't usually do this, but I just want to pray and ask the Lord's protection 
over this time. Jesus, would you help us, even right now, to, to cause our eyes to look for you? I just have a sense, Lord, in my spirit that you have some things that maybe you want to shift in us, that you want to move around. And so, God, we, we just need to pause and say, Lord, we give you full permission to do that today. In fact, we desire that. We recognize that without the leading and the moving of your Holy Spirit, we're going to feel stuck. And so, Lord, we pray against guilt, any shame, anything, Lord, that you don't desire to be here and Lord, we pray that, there, that we might be fueled by greater love of our Heavenly Father. So help us today as we, as we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you've heard the word, uh, the term, I'm sure you've heard the term, paradigm shift. It's one of the most overused phrases. Everybody's talking about shifting their paradigm. Uh, paradigm shift, I'm going to eat less, less carbs. You know, paradigm shift, I'm going I'm to floss more. Those are not really paradigm shifts. They, they, they may be good ideas. I actually heard somebody recently talk about a paradigm shift coming out of Chicago. This is not a joke. I'm not making this up. That in Chicago, they were dealing with such an issue and are dealing with such a problem of rats infesting parts of the city. Do you hear this news story? That they've decided to release 1,000 feral cats into the streets. Paradigm shift. We figured out how to take care of the rats. Of course, the logical question is, what paradigm shift will you need to do to take care of the feral cats if you're going to release wild dogs? I think this ends with somebody swallowing a horse, but I'm not sure. But I don't think these are paradigm shifts necessarily. Thomas Kuhn actually coined the phrase in 1962 when he was describing the complete revolution that happens in scientific thinking, but he acknowledged that he was borrowing the idea from the concept of Christian conversion. It was the paradigm shift, the shift, the ultimate reversal of heart and mind and thought and life, a radical transformation of the heart that impacted every part of the life of the follower of Christ, moving out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So I find it very interesting that in this overused phrase, it actually came from the idea that a human being coming into a right relationship with Jesus Christ would experience a massive shift that would, ex that would change every part of their life. Paul says to the Thessalonian church, it is God's will that you be sanctified. To this church that he loves, to the church that he's poured himself out to, he says it is God's will that you would be sanctified. Now, if you are a serious student of Scripture, you know there's not tons of places where Scripture explicitly says, let me tell you God's will for your life. In fact, the big question that most young people that I speak to ask is, I'm trying to figure out what it is that God wants of me. And I wish I could tell you that that journey gets simpler. It doesn't always get simpler. I find myself even in my 40s saying, okay, Lord, what are you asking of me? I want to be obedient, but I need to hear what it is that you want for my life. Well, when Scripture explicitly states it, I think we should take note if we're going to be serious followers of Christ. And in this passage, we see an explicit statement. It is God's will that you would be sanctified. 
If you're in Christ today, that means God has already spoken his will over your life. Sanctified is an old school kind of term that means to be set apart, that you would be explicitly set apart from the evil patterns of this world and of your old nature, and that you would be set apart to the glory and the goodness of God. All of this is in the context, as Paul is getting ready to help this church be ready for the return of Christ. So in that spirit, let's look at three things today that I think can help us to really go after this. And I think there's some practical implication, I hope, for all of us. Number one, I want to talk about a pure heart. Number two, about a witness of love. And then three, maybe the most surprising, the call to a simple life. To which some of you just went, that sounds great. I'll take that, right? Well, hang in there. We'll get there here in a few moments. Point number one is this, that we are called as sanctified believers in Christ to have a pure heart even in a corrupt world. Paul says it pretty clearly here. It is God's will that you would be sanctified. And then specifically, he says that you would avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Now, I want you to understand that the Thessalonians, the the church there, this, this group of believers that Paul loved so dearly, we know that they had come out of a life that was filled with idolatry, pagan worship, and that included sexual immorality. And so when Paul is saying your faith is being made, made famous all over the world, people are talking about the life change, the 180, the paradigm shift that has happened in your life. Now, I suspect that Paul, who was deeply aware of the old nature, was quick to remind his brothers and sisters that the fight with their old nature will continue to be a part of their journey of discipleship. In fact, this is one of the major markers of maturity as we learn to allow the new nature, the very life of Christ, to become prevalent even in these jars of clay. And I can't help but read this passage and think how incredibly relevant this is. And really what good news this is, that it is good and right for the follower of Christ to use honest self-examination, to invite accountability, to use the tools of ongoing repentance and confession in keeping short accounts with God because we are called to a pursuit of purity even in a corrupt world. I want to talk about our our world for just a moment, though I realize we could really lean into a whole lot of things that might make this uh, sermon more than a PG-13 rating, and so I, I don't want to make you overly uncomfortable except to say that I think that this is an important task for all of us not to be uh, not to be looking at as something that feels odd, like to the person that would say, well, this is sort of a an uncomfortable subject. Why are you talking about this? And why couldn't you, for heaven's sake, wait until we were inside so you're not talking about it on the front lawn? I feel you. But instead of feeling shocked or, or even judgmental, many of us have experienced that in the church, that we don't really like talking about things like purity, but then when things happen that sort of become a, a gross example of impurity, that was there all along, we tend to feel either shocked or judgmental or both. And I don't think that, that Scripture really calls us to that. It's simply saying, take this seriously. Let's go after this together. Uh, I was reading a very interesting book uh, called The Unbroken Thread. 
It's by Sonrab Amari, who is an Iranian-American. He, he was born into Islam, but then left his faith, the faith of his parents, for atheism, and then ultimately discovered Jesus as in his search for truth. He's 10 years my junior, but he writes with wisdom 20-plus years my senior. And so his book, The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos, was really quite powerful. In that book, he describes, among many other things, he describes the last decade in the West as one of sexual schizophrenia. He says, we've seen Western societies embrace with a fresh and uncompromising ardor the previous century's project of sexual liberation. This even as the downsides of our liberated sexual ethic become glaringly apparent. And he cites things such as a decade that produced the Me Too movement, the headlines of Jeffrey Epstein, failures within the Catholic Church, as well as other places. So he's drawing this tension into focus in our world that there is this radical sexual autonomism in tension with a new awareness of sexuality's dangers. So in this world that we live in, Paul is writing not to correct the world, but to encourage the church. To say, as believers who have stepped out of a worldly pattern and gone through the paradigm shift of following Jesus Christ, to go after the deep things of God. To leave no stone unturned in your pursuit of Christ. Now that is certainly not limited to the realm of sexual purity, but it's the first thing Paul draws his listeners to. The first thing he draws his readers to is to say, check your life very carefully. When I think about what does that look like in the church, I go to a book by Paul David Tripp. Uh, he wrote called Sex and Money. And, if, and you know, if, if you find in the context of this message that you think, you know, I want some good, hard-hitting uh, deeply powerful kind of teaching, go to Paul David Tripp or people like him. So here's one of the things that he notes. He says, Jesus doesn't say this about purity. He doesn't say, hey, guys, it's very simple. The problem is you live in this broken world where evil, it's evil and it doesn't function as I intended. It's populated with sinful people who will be seduced into doing the wrong thing. So if you want to live a godly life, you have to determine yourself to separate yourself from all of that. Jesus actually doesn't say that. He actually says, you've got to learn to deal with your own heart. That's part of the paradigm shift of following Christ and making him preeminent in your life. He goes on to write this way, Paul David Tripp. He says, I've heard adulterous husbands say to me, if you lived with my wife, you would understand why I did what I did. I've heard adulterous women blame the seductive power of the man. I've heard parents of pregnant teenagers blame TV and YouTube and Facebook. I've heard pastors who committed sexual sin point to the lonely burdens of stressful ministry. And here's what he goes on to say. What I hear again and again is people instinctively pointing outside of themselves to answer the question, why did I do what I did? The heart is the worship center of your life. The beauty and the paradigm shift of following Jesus Christ imperfectly though we do it, at war with our old nature, though we are, 
The joy of following Christ is that we are given the resources to not simply follow the courses of our old nature. The heart is the worship center. Your physical actions will simply follow where your heart has already gone. So if we are to be a people that are looking to live in light of eternity and are looking to see the return of Christ, I cannot keep my eyes on Jesus when my heart is full of idols. So when Paul writes this, there's actually this wonderful invitation. I pray you would receive it as such. He says in Galatians 5, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. He's acknowledging it. So listen, instead of, I know, listen, I know some of you here, you haven't had a, a misdirected thought since 1961. And praise the Lord, I'm happy for you. But it's easy if you are in that place where you say, I'm not struggling in this direction. I haven't had a lustful thought. I'm not, I'm in control of the, praise the Lord for that. But it's easy to simply then become either shocked or judgmental with others who may be struggling. We see younger generations that are coming up that are buffeted like never before. It's harder now to follow Christ in purity than it was when I was growing up. And it was harder when I was growing up than some of you who are older. But all the way back throughout history, we see this is a heart struggle that we must wrestle with. So Paul says, listen, so learn to walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other. So that they do not, so that so then you don't do just whatever you want. We see, we begin to find a freedom. I want to tell you, church, this morning, all these points will not be quite as heavy as this first one, but please don't miss this. There is a freedom in saying yes to the work of God in your life to invite accountability, to invite, to invite authenticity to invite confession and repentance, because this is what happens. Psalm 24 says this, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who doesn't trust in an idol. Everybody who's gotten this perfectly, you are dismissed. Those who are wrestling with that, who hear that and hear the calling in that, to know God better, to hear his voice more clearly. Matthew 5, 8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So church, instead of being shocked at the subject of sexual purity, instead of feeling judgmental when you see failure, let us be a generation that seeks God's face. And Paul is saying to the Thessalonian church, if you want to be ready for the return of Christ, you've got to keep your eyes on Jesus and rid your heart of its idols. Point number two, he says this. He gives us a witness of love in an angry world. He says in verse 9, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, do so more and more. This is an interesting one because it's an encouragement to say, look, that thing you're doing, you got to keep doing it. In fact, that thing you're doing, keep doing it even more and more, that you would show a witness of love 
in an angry world. I'm going to talk about this for just a few moments. I'm not surprised by the anger in our world, although I am getting tired of it. <laughs> Anybody else feel that? We're not surprised by it. You know, we're, we're creatures of habit. We have strong opinions. We, we lock horns easily. I think throughout our human history, we see conflict, 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 the demand to be right, the desire to subdue, either physically or mentally or both. So I'm not surprised by anger in our world, especially with all that we've gone through in the last year. I am somewhat surprised by the anger among my brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of you are going to go home today and say, I'm changing my social media content comments. We're moving from stun to kill. (laughs) We read from Galatians 5 just a couple moments ago. Let me back that passage up. In verse 13, Paul says this. Listen how clear this is. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather to serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. You know, this is such a great invitation for us. To, say, to take seriously as people who want to be ready for the return of Christ, okay, keep that context in mind, that we would be a people who assume the best about one another even when we disagree. And we've spoken about this on a lot of different fronts, but I'm going to keep hammering it because I think we need it. I was speaking not too long ago with a group of, of pastors, and somebody made the comment as if this was normal. They made the comment, well, if somebody doesn't understand what somebody else is saying, of course they're going to assume the worst. But they were speaking about Christian people when they said it. So I threw the flag. Personal foul. Hold it. Wait, wait, wait. Stop. Wait one second. Let's challenge that worldly paradigm in our own hearts and minds. We've said many times, you're going to have all kinds of opportunities to disagree, even in the body of Christ. I say especially in the body of Christ. I think it's one of the ways in which God causes us to grow. But that notion that we just simply assume the worst if we don't understand, God has given us better tools than that. One of my former students from uh, Alliance Christian Fellowship over here on Penn State campus, who is now serving Uh, as a pastor in our denomination, he was actually one of the council speakers at the general council gathering uh, that happened a week ago. Uh, In fact, some of you may remember him. His name is is Spencer Sweeting. Does anybody remember Spencer Sweeting? Uh, Spencer did an internship with us uh, here at this church as he was finishing up his time at Penn State. And if this rings a bell... Uh, Spencer was sort of famous. He like he was a great worship. He's a great worship leader, and he would lead worship without any shoes on. Does anybody remember that guy? Some of you are like, yeah, that's not my that's not my gig. I was curious when I saw him uh, on the screen. You know, was he actually wearing shoes when he was addressing general counsel? And to my best of my knowledge, I think he was. But what he was wearing was not so much what caught my attention. What he said did. He was offering a loving rebuke to our denomination. 
which is in the process of examining things like our statement of faith, other key issues, important things. But as often happens, there can get heated uh, opinions that, that begin to lack grace. And he asked this question, I think it's so powerful for us, as we wrestle and as we learn, as we, as we sharpen one another, what does the world see? When the world looks at God's children interacting with one another, what does the world see when it looks in to the church? Some of you are here today. Listen, I just want you to understand, this message is primarily written by Paul to Christian people. And so I'm preaching it primarily to Christian people, the majority of us here having given our hearts and lives to Jesus Christ. But please know that the world is always looking. The world is always watching. They want to see what's different about what you say. They want to see what's different about how you live. They want to see what's different about how you interact with one another. What does the world see when they watch us interact? You see, Jesus told us in John 14 that he would be giving us the Holy Spirit of God so that we might be the aroma of Christ in this world. Spencer said this in his message. He said, Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit so that his heart may be known to us and that his heart may be known through us. I want to encourage us to continue to challenge that default mode in our minds that says, if I don't understand, I'm going to assume the worst. No, by God's grace, these are my brothers and sisters. When we disagree, we're going to disagree in love. When we're wrong, we're going to correct in love. Even Paul wrote this to the Galatian church. He said, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore gently. But watch yourself. Or you might also be tempted. I guess I would say it this way. As we grapple with things in our church, as we go through a, a season of trying to rebuild and put pieces back together, and as we try to make this way forward, can we just agree to say, God, by your grace, by your grace, help me to be a witness of love in an angry world. When we talk about things like the gospel and race, which we did that a few weeks ago, and I look, some of those conversations continue. I don't know if I agree with you, brother. I don't know if I agree with you, sister. We're, we're trying to figure out some of those. These are important opportunities for us. So we're not putting that on hold so that then we can just think about, well, Jesus is coming back. We don't have to worry about it. We've got all kinds of growing to do. Let us do it with grace. Let my love for Jesus and his church, and the world that he's redeeming. Let my love for Jesus be greater than my righteous indignation, which sometimes isn't as righteous as it could or should be. The last point I want to look at, and I found this to be sort of intriguing, Paul says you want to get ready for Christ's return. You know, check your heart. You want to be, you want to be pure of heart. So we can work on those kind of things. Check your love for one another. We want to be the family of God. And then he says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Mind your business. I sort of said that a little differently than he wrote it. But I think that's, I think that's what he was thinking. Mind your business. Work with your hands. Let your daily life win the respect of the outsiders. 
I just find this very interesting that Paul's getting ready for Jesus' return pep talk includes these instructions. Yeah, work on the purity of your heart. Work on the loving witness among the brothers and sisters, but then make it your ambition. That's a, that's a powerful word. Make it your ambition. Like, go after this with energy. To mind your business, to stay active, to live simply. Again, this is incredibly relevant, very much in line with the tenets of emotional, healthy leadership that we encourage our leaders to embrace. We're not trying to impress others. We're not trying to justify ourselves all the time. We're seeking to please God. We're seeking to serve faithfully. We're seeking to live simply. Os Guinness is an author that I enjoy reading uh, and if I can listen to him speak, it's even more fun because he's got a, wonderfully English, a wonderful English accent, which I will not try to impersonate. He talks about living life at the speed of light. He says, we all know the craziness of the pressure of life's speed, stuff, and stress. Social scientists talk of fast life. Psychologists talk of hurry sickness. Business people talk of turbo capitalism. And life becomes a matter of survival of the fastest. You know, it just occurs to me as I'm preparing this message is we're going to get into the, the meat of this return of Christ over these next couple of weeks. But the reality is as we're preparing our hearts, as we're preparing the love of the fellowship and then preparing the pace of our life, there's some of us, I wonder, we're, we're trying to do so much. We're trying to run so fast that we've not even had a moment to stop and think about the fact that Jesus Christ is returning for his church. Paul says to this Thessalonian church in 2 Thessalonians, I'm going to reference this book a little bit more next week. He says, we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy. They're busy bodies. You know? And here's what he says. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ, settle down, earn, earn the food that you eat, and as for you brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. There is a certain simplicity that Paul is calling us to, and this strikes me because I guess I would have thought that if Paul was saying, if you really want to be ready for the second coming of Christ, you better get to work. We better start organizing conferences. We better start really putting a push on here. And he actually says, live simply and let the witness of your life and the balance that you show point people to Jesus Christ. So church, as we tackle some of these sort of preparatory thoughts, thinking about the return of Christ, let me ask you to simply evaluate this morning. How is the condition of your heart today? And, and if, the, if the temptation is there to sort of run back to that place, put the mask on and make sure everybody knows everything's fine, I think we miss an opportunity. You know, some of the, and again, I, I'm not suggesting that we, we, we declare everything publicly. I mean, there's certain discourses that make sense in certain settings, yes. But some of the deepest conversations, some of the greatest bonding that I have ever experienced with a brother in Christ is simply sit down and say, here's where my heart's wrestling today. Here's where I'm struggling. If any discussion about purity and things like that, you say, well, look, that's just not been a part of my journey. It's not been a struggle that I've had. Can I encourage you, pray for the next generation. Pray for your kids and pray for your grandkids and continue to do that as they navigate the minefields 
of impurity that is our world. So check your heart this morning. Secondly, check your loving witness. I realize we have a lot of things to feel righteously indignant about. And there is a place for that. I absolutely believe it. But let my love for Christ always supersede my righteous indignation. And then finally, simple living. I kind of come back to the question that we started with. If you knew that Christ was returning today, would you do anything differently in the next few hours? And I suspect that maybe God has some business to do for some of you. To the Christ follower this morning, as we go over these next weeks of Paul's challenge to the Thessalonians, may I encourage you to embrace the reorientation of living in light of eternity. We have a second coming king. We celebrate his first advent every year faithfully. Let us be a people who have eyes and expectation to see him coming again. To the not yet Christ follower, I hope that some element of this message would actually be received in your heart in the spirit that it is given, which is an invitation. That there is a paradigm of worldly living that if you are not in Christ right now, you are in that default setting. Would you receive the invitation to say yes to Jesus Christ in all of the paradigm shifting that he desires to do in your heart and your life today? And speak to somebody who's done that. Speak to somebody here and simply ask the question. I guarantee you if you asked 100 people that were sitting here, you could ask them the question, was it worth it to follow Christ? And you would probably hear some iteration again and again of somebody saying, it was actually one of the hardest things that I ever did. Because dying to self is never easy. Stepping out of old patterns is not easy. But it's the best thing I've ever done. The best decision that I've ever made. You have a community of people here who can talk to you about that decision. First Peter 2, I'd just like to read this over you in closing. I'm asking the worship team to come up at this time. We're going to sing one last song of worship. But would you receive this as people, as you have your eyes up and looking to see what God would do in eternity? First Peter 2 says this, But you are a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul and live such good lives among the pagans that though they would accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. What a great summary. I should have just read that scripture to you guys 40 minutes ago. Could have saved the whole sermon. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your love for us today. We thank you, Lord, for the renewing work that you desire to do in each one of us. God, let us be a people that say yes. Let us be a people that say yes to the, the probing work, even the, the uncomfortable places. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would leave no stone unturned. 
Because, Lord, if we would be honest before you, I pray that you would help us to do that. We would need to confess that there are many places that the goal of Christ-likeness has not yet made its way. And yet, God, we find that you are the kind of God who says, it's my kindness that calls you to repentance. So we're not trying to move into a, a mode of guilt. We're not trying to move into a mode of shame. But Lord, we would receive, we, we believe you have more for us. So as your church, I pray that you would refine us. As your church, Jesus, I pray that you would define us. And Lord, if there's somebody that's listening to this message that has not made that paradigm shift or maybe has, has kind of kept you, Jesus, at arm's length, I pray that today might be a day of, of full surrender as we bow our knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, as we receive his finished work. Lord, I pray that you would change the tone of our lives, change the goal of our lives, that you would change the purpose of our lives today. So thank you for visiting us, Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you for your word. We pray that you would have our eyes firmly focused on you as we move forward. We love you today. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Would you stand, church, together as we close in worship and make a declaration, this is my Father's world. We give him all the glory today. We give him all the praise today. In Jesus' name, amen.